Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm sitting down with Tosca Luby and Karina Holden, the two of the producers and directors and the minds behind the highly successful nature documentary, The Magical Land of Oz. Tosca and Karina succeeded in their mission of creating a film that captures the magic of Australian wildlife without all the cliches. So I'm really excited to sit down with Tosca and Karina today on this episode of Talking Australia. Hey guys, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having us. So how did you go about capturing the very spontaneous moments we saw in the magical land of Oz? Well, this is the thing about natural history, isn't it? You, you know, you can't script anything and you create this whole concept before you begin on the basis of stuff that may or may not happen. And so as we would move through the series, we'd change all the time um, uh, based on what would happen in the, field, in the field. And another example of that actually from that episode is where we were filming palm cockatoos, but as we were doing so, there was the eclectus parrot in its hollow and it was being monstered by these sulphur-crested cockatoos that kept coming at it in this hollow. And we could see that from a long way down on the ground. It was about, uh, my measurement's terrible, but it was about 25 metres up. And we watched it day after day and built a story about that, but we didn't even know that that was happening. But it became this whole story about hollows and how hard they are to find in that forest now because so much has gone and old growth trees are, you know, are so often not left standing. Um, so, yeah, natural history is, is a game of chance, but you plan meticulously and then you respond to what happens in the field. And obviously it's a three-part series, so it's broken up into ocean, land and cities. How did you kind of choose what animals to include in, in the series? Well, look, I think that part of it was actually being able to make sure we were going to have that payoff. And so going out into the field um, after having done a lot of research, talking to a lot of people and, uh, you know, planning our, our attack really was... Uh, probably more days spent in the office strategising than actually in the field in the end. When you say strategising, what does that kind of include? Well, look, I have a background in conservation biology and so for me it was really about evidence-based planning. Where are things going to happen? How do we know uh, when their breeding cycles are? How can we predict uh, the best aggregations of animals? Uh, looking at weather and and seasonality and and going in there knowing that we were most likely to have a payoff, and so that was why you know the stories that we chose were were really about making sure that we were going to maximise the amount of days we had in the field and and that we would have action packed stories. 
and then there was all those happy accidents that happened, as Tosca mentioned, of, of being out there and seeing things happening because then you become attuned to where you are. And what was it like out in the field? Because seeing some of the footage, I was like, wow, especially the spider crab march and um, things like that. Um, it, it, it was it's an amazing opportunity to be out in the field to do natural history. You know, I think these days actually maybe primarily because you're often in remote places and you're just sitting and you're waiting and you're watching and we don't do that anymore. And I think for some people that is almost a kind of an experience they'll pay for, you know, to, to people go on these Vipassana retreats so that they can go and sit for 10 days and not speak. Well, you know, that's what we get paid to do, except... Um, Often it can be very frustrating because nothing happens. But generally, if you're observant enough and flexible enough, you will find something amazing happening in Australia anywhere. That That's our experience. Mm. And all up, how long did you spend in the field? 135 days oh, wow. across the series. And how much did you film? You mean how much footage? How yeah, how much, much footage, yeah. yeah. We've never actually worked that out, have we? But... A hell of a lot. I mean, having said that, we worked with cinematographers who are very economical in the way that they shoot. So they have a cache on their cameras and they will only roll on the good stuff. And it's this amazing um, capacity for a camera to catch something that potentially you've just missed. I know that's hard to understand, but it will, it, it, it is rolling all the time and you can go backwards over the last few seconds and then roll forwards again. So it allows us when an animal suddenly does something unexpected to catch that, even though we hadn't actually buttoned on right at that moment, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And so that means that you've got a lot less in the camera than you would if you just keep rolling and rolling and waiting for something to happen, obviously not knowing when it will happen. I mean, we said recently in a, an interview we did on radio, it's 97, 97% boredom and 3% panic. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just so true. You know, you spend most of your time waiting for something to happen that doesn't and then 3% reacting to the thing that finally happened. Mm. And in terms of the conception of the idea and whatnot, who, whose idea was it to say, let's do a three-part documentary series about, you know, continent-wide, um, about all these different things? I think we've said it for 20 years now, since Tosca and I were working together at the Natural History Unit of the ABC, and we worked on shows like this, but there just wasn't anything in the landscape. And um, being able to raise the funding this time, it was being able to bring on board some international co-producers like the BBC and PBS in America, uh, opened the door for the ABC, who hadn't had landmark programming for a while, and certainly not something of this nature, and so... Getting the budget um, to the capacity to be able to tell a continent-wide story was the challenge, and that took in itself over a year. Wow. Um, to raise the finances and get people interested and say, it's the time, come on, let's go. Uh, the environment's so important, we're not telling enough of these stories. And, um, you know, the public's reaction has been fantastic. The audiences have loved it. And hopefully there'll be a little bit more interest in doing more shows like mm. this. And I think it's, it's really interesting that you say that both of you worked at the ABC Natural History Unit together um, a long time ago. And now what's it been like working like together? I mean, I know you've worked to, um, together quite closely for a while, but what's it like to do an ABC kind of broadcasted production together again? Horrible. I mean, she's so <laughs> she's such a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like 20 years. Uh, we've met each other about 20, 24, 25 years ago. And we're giving our age away. Yeah, we're ancient and we're relics, but um, we've remained friends even though in the interim, most of the time we've been working on 
documentaries about uh, domestic violence and about murders and about uh, social issues and uh, mental health and um, custody battles and things like that because we haven't had the chance to be able to tell a lot of natural history um, stories. And so being able to go back to where we really enjoy and bring all of that murder and mayhem and music as well into a production like this has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of people would be listening wondering, um, how can I get into this business? Because you guys have pretty much like dream careers. Um, How did you get, you know, um, your foot in the door? I... um did what a lot of people I think are doing now still, which is went over to the UK and worked in Bristol, which is the heartland of natural history still. And because I'd got that under my belt, when I came back to Australia, there was the ABC Natural History Unit and that was um, run by a woman called Dionne Gilmore, who was the, the really the leader in natural history at that time and for quite a few decades at the ABC and she gave me a job even though there was a job freeze on at the ABC so she was uh, she really ran her own show and uh, you know that doesn't answer the question though for people now because that unit doesn't exist anymore and it's really hard to break into but you know actually we don't get approached by that many people who are incredibly passionate, so passionate that they've gone out and um, kind of begun paving their own way. So I, I think, I don't know, it, it's, it, it's so hard that I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy in any way, but you have to have that passion and mm. you've got to be really dogged about it and be doing your own thing and filming your own stuff and following your own stories and having ideas in your head. You know, it's not enough just to think, oh, that looks like quite, f- quite fun driving around in four-wheel drives. Yeah, and Karina, what about you? Well, I came out of a science background and I entered the Natural History Unit of the ABC as one of these people who goes over the summer and, and volunteered for free, which I think is really, you can't do at the ABC anymore. You can't go as a work experience person. But I, I gave up my summer um, for free to work there and contribute as a researcher on some shows that were in production. And by the end of eight weeks, I was given the chance to stay which was amazing but I I, it was a a thing of I think it was like I was nine years into contributing to filmmaking before I was given my own production Um, and so it was being part of a team and supporting other people and bringing something to the table not uh, expecting people to hand me something on a platter but what was it that I was going to contribute and so with my science knowledge and my contacts and and everything that was my way of of contributing to a bigger story. And I worked on a, a three-part series about Australia called Eye of the Storm that went out in the um, in the year 2000. Um, so that was a fantastic experience for me. So it's been... That was the last big three-parter that I worked on. Um, coming back to Magical Land of Oz has been fantastic. Mm. And working at the ABC Natural History Unit, what kind of other things did you work on there? Like, And how different is that from, you know, the Magical Land of Oz? Well, interestingly, while Karina was doing that, I was working on the kind of human-based stuff that we were doing there. So there was already there um, an understanding that blue chip is so expensive to make that we had to make programming that included humans because it's much faster to make, it's much cheaper to make, and people really love those stories. So, for example, I was working on a a series that we did about the three Victorian zoos, which was uh, the Melbourne Zoo, Hillsville Sanctuary and Werribee 
um, Open Plain Zoo. Um, and we were looking at all the different departments and the animals and um, and looking at those ethical issues too of keeping those animals in captivity. So that was an example of some other stuff we were doing. We did a whole series about islands that also um, included human stories. So uh, we did all sorts of stuff at the ABC, um, I guess, compared to what is going on now in mm. terms of natural history. You know, it's very, very thin, mm. which I guess is also... Um, an answer to to how people work in this industry. It's very hard in Australia with so little being made. We, that's why we hope that. Mm. But both of you kind of talk about how um, you know you got really great opportunities at the ABC Natural History Unit. So I'm really curious about like that background in in the sense of um, when why did it close and have there been any kind of negative impacts from that? Look, I think it's just what happened at the ABC as they started moving towards a model of um, outsourcing. So the idea was that the Natural History Unit, although it was a, a kind of a, a crowning jewel of the ABC and it was internal production at its best and um, was making a lot of money for the ABC. I think it was the second highest um, raising of money for the ABC after Bananas in Pyjamas. <laughs> um, but it was... It, the, the model was to outsource for independent producers to make content and that's what we now do. We are independent producers making content for the ABC and it goes to a commissioning model of having commissioning editors, um, choosing programs that are being made by independent producers so that you don't have masses of people on staff and big facilities. And so the commitment was made that after the unit closed in 2006 and um, Dione retired, that there would be up to 10 hours of Natural History commissioned a year. And, in fact, I was a commissioning editor of the ABC um, from 2010 to 2013. I was never allowed to commission... Um, big continent-wide series, but I was there commissioning single one-hours. And so there was people like um, Tina Dalton and Gisela Kaufman and uh, um, Larry Zetlin and people who were making single films for a while. And they'd often make those films for uh, Australia and also in international broadcasters as well. So they'd bring in money from France or from the UK or America. And so there were um, a handful of films, but what ended up happening is my slate was being taken away and that money was being redistributed to lifestyle programming and other types of content. And so there was a, a slide that started to happen in natural history and it got to the point where I was being asked to commission films about cricket. And when I say cricket, I don't mean the <laughs> ones that are natural history films, I mean sporting programs. And so that was no longer a place for me to be able to you know, contribute. I actually don't know anything about sport, so that was a bad choice for me. So I was better off then leaving the natural history, well, the natural history commissioning job that I had, and and working as an independent producer and making shows for PBS and National Geographic and Discovery. Was instead. that jump difficult? Uh, not at that point when you're not working on shows you love mm. and life's too short, and you know you want to be able to contribute towards something that you think is making a difference and. Mm. And so it was It was an easy jump, really. Mm. And does it feel like there's been kind of a deficit of Australian natural history filmmaking since then? Oh, for sure. It, it basically got to the point where um, landmark programming was ruled out and that's the shift we've now seen. So there was a, a slow decline in the numbers and the, the quotas of, of natural history and then, you know, it got to the point where there was nothing. And, in fact, we had a wonderful series that Tosca had made um, called Outback and... We, it was all based on the natural history of the Kimberley that was being made for the Americans and we couldn't get 
um, engagement with the ABC for it and it ended up on Channel 9. Um, And it was great that it ended up on Channel 9, but they didn't love it as much as they should have. And so that was a spectacular series. Um, And it did so well in America. But, of course, it should have been somewhere where it was given a landmark slot on a Sunday night for audiences to come together and celebrate one of the most amazing parts of our country. Um, but we know the ABC is is now dipping their toes back in after Magical Land of Oz has done so well. Yeah, well, that goes to my next question. The reaction to the Magical Land of Oz has been quite incredible um, and people are asking, well, why aren't there more? So do you think now the ABC will be looking to commission more of those types of series? They're certainly saying that they will, yeah. Um, But we'll see. I mean, you know, it is a big commitment of money and uh, it it is a real specialisation. So, um, you know, they've got to commission the right people and the right ideas and... And I really hope that that happens. You know, it's, it's, but we'll see. Hypothetically speaking, if the ABC came to you and said, we want a natural history documentary series, um, give us some ideas, what would be like your dream series? We can't give that away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's already happening. I mean, like, well, not that they're coming to us, but I mean, as producers, we never stop. Yeah. You know, we that's our hustle job is to get out there and actually have ideas that we're putting in front of commissioning editors and broadcasters and saying, hey, this would be amazing. So, of course, we have to work with the momentum and the interest that's there from Magical Land of Oz and, and you know, have lots and lots of ideas that we're going back in and saying, you know, for, for a broadcaster like the ABC, they don't have a lot of money, but what happens is if you've done a good job, you're also bringing international money with you. And so... That's the other thing is, you know, Northern Pictures has been able to make shows um, where the ABC is only paying 20% of the, the floor price because we're bringing all the international money along with it. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment with Tosca and Karina. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. And when it comes to natural history filmmaking, what are some of the biggest challenges that people can have in getting into the industry? The lack of production in Australia. That's the biggest problem. And then... um, you know, crews are small. So, for example, um, I had quite a funny experience. My son came with me on a shoot and it was just me and the cinematographer and he's sitting there thinking, this is pretty boring because <laughs> the week before that he'd been in a feature film and he'd seen this whole crew with gaffers and catering trucks <laughs> and, you know, everything that goes with a a, a, a feature film and he couldn't believe that all we were was one camera and I have to say we create really beautiful images with very very small crews and that's the way we stay out in the field for as long as we possibly can so unfortunately we have to keep those crews small just to make a budget work it you know that's how you get the best pictures yeah yeah and going into basically um 
recently there's been a lot of conversations about um, whether, like, what natural history documentary's purpose is. Is it to teach or preach? Um, is it to show pristine environments or show the reality of those environments? What you, what's your kind of take on that? Well, I think that is such an interesting question and one that we're all working to answer at the moment, even the BBC, and I have to say, I do think that they've been very slow in responding to this. So I think um, as much as we all love, um, you know, that kind of quintessential David Attenborough um, model, it has been reporting on a world uh, which isn't actually true for a long time. So, you know, people filming a scene while actually at their back there's um, industry go- going on and, and we don't see that, that's not revealed. And I think that that's changing now and there's a really strong commitment to changing it now. But had that changed a decade ago, would we be feeling differently about the world? I think it's such an interesting question how people have responded to the fact that they're, they're, they've seen these wonderful aggregations of animals and they're seeing these pristine environments and therefore everything must be OK and let me relax with that. Let me be happy with that. That's what we all want to be able to do. Um, but we can't afford to do that. And do you think people turn off when they are kind of confronted with images? No, I don't think they do. And actually, Karina's just made a film called Blue, which is proof that, no, they don't turn off. They're much, they're much more um, uh, able to digest this message than broadcasters would like to think. Yeah, I mean, 100%. That's my experience, having seen the film so many times with so many different audiences from, you know, people from the age of five to 95 sitting there and saying thank you. Um, Thank you for the honesty. Thank you for showing us things that we... uh, that are happening in the world that we didn't know. And it surprised me how little people actually know and have have been able to engage in this. Um, But it is always going to be a challenge for the broadcasters who still feel that... Uh, nature has to be that warm bath experience that you you go and you watch a wildlife show in order to, to escape um, and and I appreciate that that you don't want to come up with a doom and gloom over the head uh, narrative uh, that hits people in the first five minutes and makes them want to switch off but there's important messaging there and so there's creative ways to do that and I think that that is really the the challenge of a natural history filmmaker um, in our Anthropocene is to tell stories that make people love nature but also to communicate those changes and get people activated so that they feel like they can do something or that they can contribute towards um, a better future but not to hide our heads in the sands like ostriches. Mm. And in terms of that, cre- the creative ways that you can create that balance, um, how, how does that kind of come about? What, what are some of the ways that you can do that? Well, I guess it's in the storytelling. So if you can tell a really interesting story about an animal and turn it into a character and you become invested in its journey then you're into that and if its journey takes you somewhere you wish it you know that threatens that animal then you're invested in that too mm. so and that that came there was a lot of um, animals in the magical land of Oz where that kind of came through yeah and actually um I was again. If we talk about dynasties, that BBC series, um, uh, the cinematographer from that was on a panel with me recently, and we were talking about the animals that he filmed. And as we went through them all, we realised that just about every animal that appears in that series is dead now. And 
that's that's what we're facing. You know, these animals are not in pristine environments. They're not safe. They're in national parks that have very clear par parameters. And as even if you can build a population um, to a healthy number within a national park, then what happens? Where do they go? How do they stake out their own territory, which is what animals do? Mm. And he was saying, you know, tigers, for example, are really good at being tigers. They, they're survivors, but not if they run out of land. And, you know, that, that's what we're grappling with all the time as, as documentary makers. That's a really hard story to make a happy story. But if you concentrate on the fact that they are such good survivors, that they will survive, they will thrive if you can give them what they need, then that's the great part of the story that the, the human population needs to understand. Mm, I found it really interesting how um, the, there was this story of the fox included in the um, third episode that was based on cities. Um, why did you uh, feel the need to include it and um, do you feel that it kind of told a, a different kind of story about urban ecology that's, um, I guess, more in front of people's faces? Yeah, uh you know, I can't believe how many people have said to me, I didn't know we had foxes. <laughs> and I think you're kidding me. And then others will say, well, I knew we had foxes, but I didn't think there were any urban foxes. So even though they're living all around us, there are so many foxes around us, people are completely unaware that they're there. And so that seemed to be a really important story to tell. And actually that came about because at first we said we'd do this fox story and then when we started looking at it, we realised no one knows anything about the foxes. There's so little research going on about them that we couldn't find out where they were travelling or why or where their um, dens were or even figures or how they're interacting with native animals or non-native animals. How did you cope with that? Well, so... That was the case and, and then we thought actually we might just have to drop this fox story because even if we put a whole lot of cameras everywhere to try and just catch glimpses of them, it's never actually going to tell enough of this story. And then I was sitting in my backyard in Coogee with a whole lot of people making a whole lot of noise and this fox is just sitting there watching us and I thought, okay, I get it. Yep, right, you are there. We need to find another way of of, um, of staking, you know, staking... Of, of, capturing you and down at Clavelli Beach near where I live if you go down any night after dark there's foxes it's just no one's studying them so they're there and actually they're quite easy to see they're quite friendly they have nothing to fear um and and they'd just be frolicking around on the beach they'd come and steal our camera gear like they, they're not they're not shy and it seemed really important to tell this story partly also because you know, foxes are beautiful animals. They're such amazing survivors themselves and yet they're so devastating and what they've done in Australia is so terrible and we so can't afford to have them here. And again, it's trying to communicate that line, you know, that people understand that um, none of this is simple, none of this is a straightforward, OK, cull them, um, you know, it's all very complicated stories and really interesting stories. And what episode have you gotten the best reaction to? I think everyone's got their own kind of personal I, thing. I feel like it's a personality thing, yeah. what episode you like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously episode one went out and it was Oceans and that was huge and people were really blown away by the cinematography and um, I think we had scenes in there that kind of were 
I mean, there were scenes that had been shot by Blue Planet, but we felt like we'd top them. I mean, we had our spider crabs cannibalizing each other and doing watching crazy that. I was like and, shocked. I was like, I cannot. Has yeah. this ever been? Was that had that ever been filmed no, before? No, no. And in fact, even just those spider crabs, people didn't even really understand that that was happening in Port Melbourne until quite recently. I mean, it's only been 10, 12 years that. Uh, people knew what was going on. And when we tried to get information from the Museum of Victoria where the, the crustacean scientists are working, there was so little known and what were the cues. And so, again, I mean, citizen scientists really helped us in in making this series in that we were um, working with people over Instagram and, and through citizen science to work out when things were likely to happen and, and cues kicking in and the dive teams down there um, started to see the water temperature drop and said, OK, we think it's going to happen around then. And, and we hit the nail on the head. And we know for a fact that um, when Blue Planet shot it, they they shot it for five weeks. And I think we had three days and we got better footage. So uh, I just say locals on the ground. (laughs) And how do you shoot a scene like that? Oh, well, I think it was like 12 degrees in the water and a lot of just time spent um, being in the right uh, place at the right time for sure. But John Shaw and Lucas Hanley, who went and, and filmed that, they are... Um, epic underwater dive people and and they were there just hour after hour after hour underwater Um, and they went in during you know from dawn all the way through to midnight filming to see you know how behaviors changed between dawn and and midnight. Mm. And I'm wondering as someone who watches a lot of natural history documentaries on Netflix um, for too long um, how is Netflix kind of disrupting? Because like now people don't really watch them on TV. They're using Netflix. They're using all these different streaming programs. So how does that, how does that kind of come into the way you guys want to make films and how you market them and whatnot? I think it's evolving and we, we, we'll see soon. So, for example, we know One Planet is about to launch, which is... Um James Honeybourne, who used to be the head of the Natural History Unit of the BBC and, and led all the big Planet Earth series. He's now just struck out and he's created his own production company outside of the BBC and he's made this huge series. And, in fact, he's somebody else I've known for 24 years and um, started as a researcher like myself and I look at his career in great envy. Um, but So One Planet will be amazing. I think that's launching in April and we know a lot of people who are in the natural history community overseas, especially in the UK, who are now making most of their content for the big streaming services. They uh-huh. call them fangs overseas. It's like um, the streaming services. So it's like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google. The fangs have, have just entered the realm of natural history <laughs> filmmaking. And so, uh, Is it, there an interest from Netflix for that type of content? There is, and it's very much being dominated by uh, the UK producers. And so I think everyone in Australia is really interested in this and we're everybody in, in all elements of Australian production, whether it's drama, kids, um, social documentaries, everybody's waiting for the big Netflix commissions to happen out here and it hasn't yet happened. And part of that is that there is no quota on Australia content on our streaming services. And so that's something that the government is very aware of because they force that on local broadcasters. Right. But what we would like to see is the streaming services who are starting to take over a lot of the broadcast their space is to get them to make a commitment to local programming so that there's also um, both content and for the production community more opportunities. Mm, And I wanted to go into, you know, um, obviously Australians love the magical land of Oz and I thought it was really interesting that you used Barry Humphreys. Can you go into that decision and why it is important to use kind of Australian voices? 
Yeah, it's been a fantastic reaction to the fact that it was not just an Australian voice but Australians telling this story. So that was really important for us. There were actually two completely, well, not completely, but very different scripts for the BBC and the ABC. And we had begun thinking this would all be one and it, it sort of forked out because we realised that there was so much that didn't need to be explained to Australians because that they know all that. But more importantly, that it was an Australian interpretation of this land. It wasn't a British interpretation of mm. this land, which we're so used to to seeing because of the lack of natural history made on Australian mm, that's what That's how I felt when I was watching. It was kind of like, oh, this isn't just skimming the surface about this is where a kangaroo lives. It's actually animals. I was like, wait a minute, I didn't know that. Which was great, especially from people who were really interested in natural history saying to us, oh, I, I learned so much. I learned stuff about kangaroos. Who would have thought you'd learn anything about a cam- kangaroo? I thought I knew everything about kangaroos. So even the, you know, the really well-known animals, we were trying to inject something that would be surprising to Australians. Mm. Uh, but then in terms of Barry, he, um, uh, you know, he's not known for natural history in any way, obviously. And when we first approached him, he was like... Yeah, what was his reaction? <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, darling, I can't do that. And uh, and then we showed him some footage and he said, yep, I'll do it. He's like, he agreed to be the next David Attenborough pretty much. Well, he did. But can I just point out, he was Bruce the shark in Finding Nemo. <laughs> oh, my gosh, was he? He was. And he was also, he was, uh, he was the, the character, Hobbit. he was the Hobbit in Lord of the Rings. So <laughs> oh he had done some pretty epic narration we just may not have been familiar because it was very much character-based. But, yeah. you know, he's got an amazing voice and so much range. And, you know, there's a little bit of Attenborough-esque in there, but, you know, it was also very much the ability to be cheeky because why not? Because aren't we all cheeky as Australians? Mm. And, and on on the note of, like, you know, uh, this content really appealing to Australians, how important is it given the political context in terms of land clearing, um, climate change and all those other environmental issues um, that they do connect and hear their own stories like in the magical land of Oz? Well, I don't think those stories would have been told like that. In fact, I know they wouldn't if, if this wasn't an Australian production with us kind of leading those stories because uh, for Karina and I, we don't make natural history just to put pretty pictures up. We're really making it because we're environmentalists. And um, so we couldn't have done the series without doing that and couldn't have worked in those environments without telling what we saw and what was happening with animals out there. It, it would have seemed pointless to do anything else and actually counterproductive. So um, that was unavoidable. I think there's there has been shows about Australia that have been done, you know, often there's film crews that have come in from different countries and we kind of think of those almost like postcard series. So you see shots of koalas and kangaroos and crocodiles and, and then you get this information that's very similar to what you would read on Wikipedia. And I think that's the kind of natural history that the world has seen about Australia and so it was really about we can do so much better than that. Mm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, guys. Pleasure. That was fun. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. 
And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 